together here. We are just near the beginning of a new sermon series titled The Big Story. So I'm going to give a little introduction as to what we covered, kind of the hope and purpose of the series here at the beginning this week, uh, as I did last week as well. So one of the big things with this series is uh, we want to help ourselves read the Bible. Uh, for one, the Bible is just, it's not read a ton nowadays. Its importance is kind of minimized, and, and I think part of that is because we've just become biblically illiterate for whatever reasons, and so um, in this in this series, part of our hope is we want to help ourselves read the Bible better, to understand it more, and to do that, we want to see it as one coherent story, to see how everything is interconnected within the Bible, and I shared my experience uh, with this last week, but uh, the Bible for many years was kind of all these disparate stories that they, they just didn't make a lot of sense to me. It's like, how does this thing at the beginning of the Bible correlate to the end of the Bible? And when I had some people help me really see how it's all really connected, the Bible really began to come alive for me, and, and I began to love reading my Bible. So last week, we looked at the idea of creation. So we see creation at the beginning, but it's not just creation at the beginning in Genesis, but we see theme, this theme popping up throughout, and ultimately with Jesus, how he makes people a new creation. And so we talk through that idea. Now, the creation conversation is oftentimes fixated on the how and the when. How did it happen, and when did this happen? The timing of things. I, when, when I read scholarly work or commentaries, I'd say probably 90% is fixated on the how and the when. So was it an actual day? Was it millions of years ago? When, when did this happen? And if you get further into it, the gap theory, like what, what's all that? And so there's all these things um, that are explored. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong or that, that it's a waste of time, but I don't think that that's really the focus. I don't think that's the big point of what we see in the creation story. The point that we find in the creation story is the who. Who is creating? The what? What is being created and why? Why are these things being created? Creation is the beginning of God's revelation, of him revealing himself to his creation. We learn about who God, uh, who God is, the fact that God is gracious and that he creates to give grace to his creation. He wants to share the good things that he has, and the goodness that he is, he wants to share that with his creation. We learn that he is all-powerful, that there is no one, there's nothing like him, and we see this distinct connection between his power and his words. He speaks creation into existence, and what we read later in the Bible is the fact that Jesus comes as the word of God. So God is all-powerful. We see that God is good in creation. As he's creating at the beginning, he steps back and he says, and says, and it was good. And this is part of who God is. He is good. He's also the, or in his creation and in, in God, we see the epitome of glory. God is glorious. And, and so sometimes, even one of my kids asked re recently, why do we give God glory? 
Well, the reason is because he alone is worthy of glory. There's nothing like him. He is the epitome of glory. Only God deserves glory. And so we discovered some of these things last week. And, and I talked about how the Old Testament gives us this pattern over and over and over that God created and then sin happens. And then God judges the sin and then God's going to recreate in a sense. So he's going to make things new in some sense. Not completely like we, we read in Genesis 1, but he's going to recreate in one way or another. And so what we learn about God in this is that he is steadfast in his love. That though his creation is rebelling against him, they're saying, no, we'd rather do things our way. He keeps pursuing, he keeps rescuing, he keeps recreating and seeking to woo his creation to himself. And, and what we see oftentimes is God's doing this work in the natural realm. So we talked last week about the idea of the flood. So God flooded the earth. He was judging sin, kind of wiping the slate clean, but he left Noah and his family. And so he's recreating in this natural way. But what's really going on is God's displaying his power through the natural realms as he's pointing to our area of greatest need. And that's the spiritual realm. Our greatest need is found in the spiritual realm. And we're going to talk about that more today. We also saw last week how God's continual work is oftentimes through one representative man. So we saw Adam last week and how that then would lead to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then to Moses as well. And so uh, when we get to Jesus, it should not surprise us. We're, we're ultimately leading to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is ultimately going to resolve our greatest problem, which is sin. Our spiritual problem, our greatest problem is sin. And this is why Jesus emphasizes his importance. This is what he has come to do. And, and I talked about this is why we preach the way that we preach at Center Church, where we're always ending up at Jesus, saying, look at him. Trust in him. The point of all of this is not Jesus. It's not, here's all the things you can walk out of here and do this week. No, Jesus has done this for us. We need to believe in who he is and what he has done. His work for us. And this is the way Jesus talks as well. He's saying, the whole Old Testament is about me. So in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus says there, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So as Jesus is talking about the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he's saying the whole Old Testament, okay? All the things that point to me there, that, that the Old Testament is about him. And what he's doing then is he's bringing fulfillment to all of those things that are being written about him. So he's saying all that's come before me is about me. It's pointing to me. And then in 1 John 3, 5, Jesus explains there why he came. Or it's not Jesus talking, but it, it explains there why Jesus came. It says, he appeared in order to take away sins. So this is why Jesus has come to this earth. He came here to deal with our greatest problem, which is sin. But how did we get here? Why, why did God need to take on flesh, have to come to this wretched, cursed existence 
to save us. How did we get to this point? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So this story begins perfectly in a garden. It's what we talked about last week, creation. So two people were given everything that they needed, and then more as well. So they were given food to eat. They were given work to do. They were given companionship. They were given everything that they needed. But they decided that they wanted more, and so they rebelled against God. So they looked at all that they had, and they said, that's not enough. God loved them perfectly. He'd given them life. He supplied them every good thing, and yet that was not enough. So they decided to disobey him, and this is what we call the fall, or when original sin came into this world, when humanity was fractured. And immediately, when this happened, everything changed. Absolutely everything. So if you think about divisions in the Bible, this is one of the major divisions. When sin occurred, because everything changed. Everything that happened after that is now affected by what happened by Adam and Eve's decision. So now life will be filled with pain and toil and sadness. Adam and Eve themselves... They are exiled from the home that God gave them. They're exiled from the garden. They are separated from God. And what we find out is they are spiritually dead. So this part of them that is most important, not physical, but spiritual, they now have become dead. And, and when we say dead, we mean dead. Like there is nothing that they can do to wake themselves up. They are in a hopeless state. And in Genesis 2.17, we find God warning Adam and Eve about the harm of their disobedience. God tells them, if you disobey, you shall surely die. God was very clear about this. If you disobey me, you will die. You will die. But Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and he refutes God's words. He tells them, in Genesis 3, 4, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. Satan's sweet talk convinced them. It sounded so good, and in fact, it was too good to be true. When they sinned, death ensued, just as God said it would. Death ensued from their sin. And what we find is this trail of death. So initially, Satan murders the souls of Adam and Eve. That's what he's doing there. And then this trail of death is going to continue. So Adam and Eve had a son named Cain. Cain is going to end up murdering his brother Abel. And then after Adam and Eve sin against God, they, in their own marriage, experience a form of death as well. They blame each other. So God comes to them in the garden, and what they do is they're like, Adam says, this woman, and Eve says, yeah, but, this man, and they just blame shift, and, and in that, there is death that's occurring in their marriage. So Satan effectively drove a wedge between them in their marriage, and so it's not surprising then in the years that follow that one of their descendants named Lamech would break marital union with his wife and then would end up marrying multiple wives himself. Lamech is also known for 
being struck, being hit by a young man and responding to this young man by murdering him. And so you can just look at the early pages of the Bible, and what you see there is summed up really well in Genesis 6-5, where it says, The Lord saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Death was everywhere, and it was just spreading more and more. So we talked last week about then God judged humanity for their sin by sending a destructive flood. And in this, he is doing a form of recreation. Now, soon after, the pattern of rebellion against God is going to continue. So humanity seeks to make a name for themselves by building this really tall tower. They say, we are going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to do this great thing. We are going to be godlike. So we're going to build this tall tower, and people will look at us, and they will think highly of us. We will display our greatness. But God sees what's going on, and he's going to judge them. He's going to confuse their language, and in this, he's also going to disperse them across the face of the earth. And then in the generations that follow, what we see in humanity is just increasing idolatry, increasing sexual immorality, increasing deception, sin, is just multiplying, it's progressing, and the rebellion against God just continues to grow amongst humanity. And yet, in the midst of all of this rebellion, what we find in God is that he is faithful. He is faithful when humanity is unfaithful towards him. And so, because of God's faithfulness to his people, we read in Exodus 1-7 about his people. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. And so despite the fact that God's people continued in sin, he still allowed them to grow and to increase. He allowed very good things to occur within his people. Now, as his nation is growing and increasing, they are in a country named Egypt. And the king of Egypt notices that this group of people is increasing. And so he says, if we do not put them under our thumb, they are going to rebel or they will flee. And so he says, let us make them our slaves. So God then, as, as the king of Egypt puts them under slavery, God is going to respond and he's going to powerfully deliver Israel from the mess that they're in, in slavery in Egypt. And funny enough, Israel's response against God is very quickly going to be to complain and grumble against him. The disparity of God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness is so obvious. If you read through these, I mean, throughout the Old Testament, God is faithful. Israel is unfaithful. God extends kindness and goodness. Israel complains and grumbles and rebels against God. So God delivers Israel from slavery, but interestingly, interestingly enough, it's almost like he puts them back into slavery. So Adam and Eve were given one command, don't eat from that tree. 
But now what God is going to do for his nation is he's going to give them ten main commands that they need to follow. So what are the chances? If Adam and Eve couldn't keep one command, what are the chances that this nation is going to be able to keep ten commands? And that's why I say it's almost as though God puts them right back into slavery. And I think what God is doing here is he is helping them to see they must be dependent on him. They can't go do their own thing. They're not going to save themselves. They're not going to make a, make a great name for themselves. They need God. So what happens is Moses receives these commands from God while he's up on a mountain. And when he comes down to present them to Israel, they'd collected all of their gold and had fashioned a cow god. Okay, so they're basically breaking all the Ten Commandments as God is giving them to Moses. So we should see really clearly that, that it's hopeless, right? It's hopeless for this people. There's this great verse that depicts what's going on in Exodus 33. God talks to his people after this. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So uh, here again, after God's people have rebelled against him, he's saying, go up to this land that's prosperous, that I have prepared for you, a land that he had promised to them. So he, he made this promise, now he's delivering on this promise. And we learn things about God in this, right? He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Not because they deserved it, but he's saying, because of who I am, go up to this land that is flowing with milk and honey, a very Eden-like land, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You are rebelling against me. So go up to this land, enjoy this land, but I am not going to go with you. What we do find with God throughout the whole of the Old Testament is that he is good, he is patient, he is faithful, and he is steadfast in his love. And his people cannot find enough ways to spite him, to dive headlong into sin. God was right. He warned them. He warned Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will die. They sinned. Sin has led to death. We see this in Adam and Eve. We see this in Israel. And it's demonstrated over and over and over, over the course of thousands of years, with many, many people. Sin leads to death. Sin makes us mad. It gives us just enough satisfaction that we'll keep coming back. Never fully satisfied, but satisfied just enough, thinking that we might find it next time. Always wanting more. And that's the allure of sin. Never satisfied, always wanting more. And sin blinds us. It drives us to do insane things. I think the best glimpse of this is Jesus, a man who loved perfectly, a man who obeyed God perfectly, who possessed immeasurable power, and yet used that power for good. Not just to selfishly serve himself, he used immeasurable, immeasurable power for the good of others. He cared for the oppressed, he healed the sick, he gave hope to the hopeless, he loved the unlovely, and yet he was killed. And the funny thing is, what we find in the death of Jesus 
is this is one time when we find enemies uniting. Enemies united to kill God. They banded together to kill the one person who never deserved it. And, and the funny thing about sin is we'll look at that, what happened with Jesus, and sin will tell us, you'd never do that. You wouldn't make that mistake. And the Bible tells us, yes, you would. Yes, you would. And you do every day. And the fact that you aren't fully satisfied in Jesus. Every time that we run to sin, we're saying, Jesus is not enough. And the reality for us is not much has changed. We, we can look at the whole of the Old Testament and we see how sin is so rampant, how people make foolish decisions over and over, but not may, much has changed for us. I mean, we've invented more ways to sin, right? But, but that's pretty much all that has changed. It's still sin. We still rebel against God. We look out at the landscape of, our, of this world and we see war, we see assault, taking place all the time. Hatred. We see the exploitation of women and children. We see racism and slavery. We see prideful superiority or cruel indifference to those that we view underneath us. There's accidents, miscarriages, divorce, cancer, infertility, laziness, addictions, loneliness. We live in a world broken by sin. We should not have to look far to be able to acknowledge that something is severely wrong. And something is severely wrong inside of us as well, the way that we're drawn to it. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest problem is sin. And the fact that Jesus has come, the way he lived his life, the mission that he set about should convince us of this rea reality, our greatest problem is sin. It is vital for us to understand this, that the origin of all of our pain, all of our struggle, is sin itself. So if this is our greatest problem, then we should look for a solution that will address this problem, right? Like if, somebody, if, if somebody's drowning in the ocean, we're not going to throw them a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to save them, right? Like, that's not the solution that they need. And if our greatest problem is sin, then we should look for the appropriate solution. And the Bible tells us that the solution to our problem of sin is Jesus. It's not rigorous practice of religious duties or acts. It's not self-improvement in any way. It is believing the gospel. It is looking at Jesus. It is trusting him to do something that we ourselves cannot do. Okay, so everybody's favorite topic is sin, right? Whenever, whenever you go to church, it's like no one's jumping up and down saying, yes, we've got sin today. Th this is a gloomy reality, but this is our reality. This is what we live in, what we have to wrestle with. So what do we do with this. We need to learn about this world. We need to learn about ourselves, and we need to learn about God in the midst of this. So what I want to do, I've got four points of gospel application. These are much more extended than our normal gospel application. So uh, let's work through these. First of all, we need to understand 
that we don't live in a spiritually neutral world. We don't live in a spiritually neutral world. So as Americans, uh, we're told that we can pursue our own happiness, right? So this encourages us to view life as a playground, right? Like what's the next toy that I can play with? What's the next fun experience? What's the next thing I can do, the next hobby I can get engaged with? What's the next thing that I can do for fun? But the Bible paints a picture of the world that's very different than that. It paints a picture of this world as a battlefield. Like it's a wartime experience. Satan would love for us to try and seemingly enhance our lives by doing the next fun thing, engaging in whatever that might be. And then just add a little bit of Jesus to that. He would love for us to do that, only to, de- to, to deceive us so that it might hasten our death. We don't live in a spiritually neutral world. We have an enemy who is actively working against us. Satan is real. He is unseen, but his works are very evident. Everywhere that we go, Satan is a consummate liar. Going back to the Garden of Eden, he is trying to make God look unreasonable. He is trying to make God look like the bad guy. That he w- that's what he wants us to think about God. Satan wants to deceive you in the hopes that he can ultimately destroy you. So, have you ever thought about, like, you're thinking about God. Have you ever thought that God is this really harsh individual? When you arrive at that place, what you need to know is that is a lie that's being whispered into your ear and into your heart by Satan. Do you ever doubt that God loves you? Do you ever think, man, my sin makes me unlovable? I've gone beyond what God can actually love? That is a lie being whispered to you from the pit of hell. And I'm not saying that you can just go sin and do whatever you want. I'm not, I'm not advocating that at all. But what I'm saying is that Satan is actively working in your heart to convince you you are not enough, that you are beyond the reach of God, that you're one of those few that God does not care about. You have sinned too much. You have run too far. That is not who God is. We do not live in a spiritually neutral world. And one of the things that, the fact that many of us are church folk, okay, maybe have been Christians for many years or are newer Christians, one of the ways that we need to come at this whole thing too is that we think of sin as doing bad things, right? Like, oh, th- there's these, this certain list of sins that, that Christians should not do. But I want to encourage you not to think of sin as behaviors, I want to encourage you to think of sin as a condition. It will lead us to do bad, sinful things, which will include seemingly good things. Okay? So sin is a condition that will cause us to do evil things, and some of those evil things will seem to be good things. So in our Ecclesiastes series, we 
that we just finished up, we, we had a sermon where we talked about this idea, don't be overly wicked and don't be overly righteous. Which sounds like a really weird thing that the Bible says, but that's what it says in the Bible. Don't be overly righteous. What that means is there's this really tricky aspect of sin. When Eve sins, part of her thinks that she's doing something good. Many of us sin by trying to do righteous things. Many of us sin by trying to add to what Jesus has already done. Thinking that there are things that it, maybe Jesus made us this righteous, but if I do these five things, I can increase my righteousness in some way. Or God will kind of look at me as kind of a better Christian if I do these things. So we might show up on a Sunday morning to serve, but all the while inside of ourselves, our hearts are bitter. I wish I didn't have to do this. I hate working with this person, whatever it might be, right? But we're showing up to serve. On the outside, it looks like we're doing a good thing, but on the inside, our hearts might be far from God. We are often motivated by selfishness or self-righteousness. We might read our Bible so that God's not mad at us, or so that maybe we can tell somebody else that we read our Bible that day, rather than reading our Bible so that we might know God. Because we want to see how he reveals himself to us so that our faith in him would grow. These are all sinful motivations. Sin is seen when we do evil, but also when we reach for goodness instead of reaching for God. When we seek goodness apart from God. Okay? So, our goodness is intricately connected, always connected to God. We cannot become good or grow in goodness outside of God. So we don't live in a spiritually neutral world. Satan's working against us. In John 8, Jesus makes a really alarming statement. He calls someone there a child of the devil. A child of the devil. That's a scary thing, right? Like, but the reality is, we all are. We all are until we aren't. We all are a child of the devil until we aren't a child of the devil. Sin is who we are. It's not what we do. It is who we are when we are born on this earth. Our greatest problem is sin. Satan wants to deceive us so that ultimately he can destroy us. Because our greatest problem is sin, the solution must also be spiritual. Trusting in Jesus. That is what we need. He is the conqueror of sin. So, uh, let me just make this invitation. If you're a non-Christian and you wrestle with this, your greatest problem is sin. Your greatest problem is sin. And the answer is not, not just to go to church a bunch. It's not just to read your Bible. First and foremost, it's about believing who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That is the call for non-Christians. And that other stuff will work itself out. It's important, it's helpful, it's necessary. But it's just doing those things is about what 
you do or what you have done, not about what Jesus has done. We want to put the focus primarily on what Jesus has done. Okay, secondly, God is not morally culpable for sin. God is not morally culpable for sin. So what we find throughout the Bible, humanity sins, they rebel against God. We, we ourselves, we will twist and pervert everything that we have. We will, we will even unconsciously think, how can, I, how can I get the most out of this thing to serve me in the best way? Th- that's just how we're wired in our sinful flesh. The Bible is abundantly clear. We are the ones guilty for sin. God is not. Our sin is an affront to God. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. God can't be tempted with evil. We can, but God can't be tempted with evil. It's antithetical to who he is. As God loves us, just like the Israelites, as God loves us, we will still demand more. We'll have whatever we have for a while, and then we'll think, what's next? What else can I have? And the entitlement kind of seeps in and through us. Repeatedly, what we find God doing is pursuing and saving, rescuing a human race that endangers itself by rejecting God. We are culpable for sin. God is doing everything necessary to save sinners. All right, third. Sin is never a small deal. Never a small deal. It's easy to read the Bible and view God as kind of this unreasonable, uptight, angry old dude, okay, and think, man, why does God just lash out so violently against sin? So as I mentioned earlier, when when we question God's justice or his goodness, this is Satan seeking to plant lies into our hearts. One thing that we learn in the Bible that's really clear is that God hates sin. He hates it. Absolutely hates it. God is holy. He's perfect, and sin is the antithesis of who he is. And here's the thing. God hates sin because he loves you. God hates sin because he loves you. When we see and we read about God's hate-filled response to sin, it should teach us not what a horrible guy God is. It should teach us about how horrible sin is. It is abhorrent. Sin is offensive. All sin. It doesn't matter if you think your sin is less than somebody else's sin. All sin is offensive to God. It's horrific. Your sin, it is violent. It is grotesque. It is hate-filled. My sin is worse than I think it is. Your sin is worse than you think it is. And here's the thing. You know what commends the smallness of sin that makes us think my sin isn't so bad? Sin. Sin commends the smallness of sin. Our sinfulness will tell us our sin is not so bad. God is violent towards sin because it's violent to what he loves. In order to love something, it means you have to hate something. The fact that God loves his creation means he has to hate sin and he will act against it sin is destructive it has no regard for anything good 
We look out at our country and this world, the mass shootings, child abuse. We think of maybe the death of a young mom, your hoarding of money, your anger, your self-righteousness, your laziness, your gluttony. It's all destructive. It's all destructive. It's never contained just to you. It destroys you, but it destroys those around you as well. And all sin leads to death. It's senseless. It's insane. It has no regard for anyone or anything. But Jesus, the innocent Son of God, hanging on the cross by shreds, heaving as he tries to breathe, bloodied on his body, that's senseless. Jesus on a cross is senseless. And we are guilty and responsible for that. Because we love ourselves more than God. That's just who we are. We have to come to grips with that. But what we see in Jesus is that God enters senselessness and he absorbs senseless suffering to save. To save people who don't deserve it. It's all senseless because it's marked by sin. Sin is never a small deal. Lastly, God is a redeeming God. We have to get this picture of who God is. When we go back to the beginning, we find that there's this tree that led to this whole mess. Adam and Eve were instructed not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we find Satan depicted as a snake slithering up to them and whispering lies, suggesting God did not really mean what he said. Because of what Satan did, God cursed him. God cursed the serpent. Now there's this seemingly odd story in the Old Testament book of Numbers. What we find there is that after God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, they begin to complain. They didn't like the food that they had. They, they called it worthless food. They were tired of eating it. This was sinful. So God judged their sin, and he sent serpents amongst his people. Those serpents ended up biting many people. Many people died because of those snake bites. Israel came to their senses. They confessed their sin against God. And so God spoke to Moses, who was leading his people at that time, and he said, take a stick, create a bronze snake, and put it on top of that stick. If people will look at that cursed snake, or that bronze snake, they will be healed from their curse. They will be healed from the snake bites that they have received. They will not die. This isn't an odd story that makes no sense whatsoever. It's continuing a pattern that began in the garden that's fulfilled in Jesus. Hanging on the cross, Jesus was viewed by many as the equivalent of a cursed serpent because it was only a cursed man who would hang on a cross. But Jesus, he was cursed. He was cursed by sin, not his own, but he was cursed by sin, condemned by man, judged by God for man's sin. What seemed like Satan's victory was actually his demise because Jesus hanging on the cross is the same as how the story started in a sense, except Jesus is the better Adam. That's what Romans 5.14 says. Jesus is the better Adam. Adam, 
selfish, selfishly consumed from the tree in the Garden of Eden. Jesus selflessly hung and died on the tree at Calvary. And this is the tree that we now look at for the forgiveness of sin. This is the tree that we look at over and over for eternal life, the cross. When we look at Adam and Eve, they were exiled, separated from God when they sinned. Jesus was exiled and separated from the garden-like presence of his Father so that we don't need to be exiled, so we can be rescued from our sinful exile. God is a redeeming God who pursues his creation because he loves them. The biblical pattern of sin and humanity's prolific propensity for sin should commend to all of us that all have sinned. All have sinned. Every single person on earth has sinned. The solution to sin is Jesus on a cross, and it should alarm us to its horror, to how destructive sin really is, as well as it should show us how far God is willing to go to show his love for his enemies, to show his love to rescue those who have rebelled against him. So as we see, as we see this story as it unfolds, sin in the garden unfolding throughout the Bible, this is our story as well. There's some ways in which we can respond to this now. First of all, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, flee from sin. Flee from sin. Don't believe in sin, that it will give you what it promises to give you. Flee from sin by, by believing the gospel. Don't believe in yourself. Don't believe in sin. Believe in Jesus. Believe the gospel. Then confess your sin. James 5 talks about this. Confess your sin to others. And this isn't just like a uh, once a year kind of a thing or, or every so often. This should be the pattern of our lives. This is why God gives us the church, why he gives us his people so that we would confess our sins to one another. We would share this with others. We would let people help shoulder this load for us. And it, I know, I get that it's so opposite to the way in which church functions for many people. But this is what God called us to do. Confess your sin to one another. Let other people care for you, support you, speak into your life, hold you accountable, love you in the way that Jesus has loved you. Those dark areas of our hearts, we need to shine the light of Jesus on them. It's the only way that we will conquer sin, not by us trying to white-knuckle it. We need the light of the world, Jesus, to shine into our hearts. And the only way that we're able to confess this stuff is that we find our identity and our security in Jesus. We have to be rooted in him. We have to know he loved us. Even in the midst of our sin, he loved us. Okay, so if I confess my sin, it's all right. Someone might reject me. Probably not. Probably not. They're probably going to be encouraged to then do likewise as well. So confess your sin. Flee from your sin. And lastly, as Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for sin. As you see ways in which you are tempted, as you see patterns in your lives where you're like, ah, when I feel this way, when I do this thing, when I'm in this spot, I'm tempted for sin. Make no provision for it. 
no provision whatsoever. All of our sin is serious. All of our sin is a big deal. Don't say just this one time. Because one time leads to a second and to a third. We are called to kill sin. Kill it. Cut its head off. Be done with it. We are called to be a distinct people who seeks Jesus, not our sinful indulgence, who confesses our sin, who lives open-handedly and with our hearts exposed so that others would see the beauty and the glory that's found only in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the fact that you don't leave us in our sin. You come to save us, to save us from the horror of our sin. So God, first of all, I just pray that you would help us to see that sin is horrific. As we're going to sing songs, I pray that you would press hard upon our hearts. You would help us not to minimize sin in any way. Help me not to minimize my sin in any way. Help us to see that it is an affront. It is hatred towards you. And yet you don't just leave us to die in our sin. You don't leave us on an island hopeless. You come to us and you make every provision for us to flee from sin, to find forgiveness for our sin. So God, help us to look at you. Help us to look at you hanging on a cross to see how grotesque sin and to see how great your love is for us. So capture our hearts, God. Capture our affections. May our lives be all about you. And as others look at our lives, encounter us, I pray that they would be drawn to you as well. You are a great God. Thank you for your patience, for your kindness, for your goodness, for your grace. Thank you for doing everything necessary so we can be saved by grace through faith. Help us to put our trust in you. You are everything. In your great name I pray. Amen.